job, Dusty. Happy hey, how come you didn't stand up there the whole every July. service? You didn't just did that the last service. Why well, not all I the like services? That. Can you stay there the whole service? Just staying right there and no, I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. <laughs> hey, welcome to Freedom House, everybody. Y'all look fantastic. The one o'clock. You guys, how many y'all from South End? Wave at me if you're from South End. How many Lake Norman people are there here? And then Central people. All right, come on, way to go. I know, so we, we added this service on just so if you were at another campus, you wouldn't feel like That's right. that you didn't get to hear Charlie speak. So we're just gonna have fun. Yes. Charlie said he's gonna let it rip this service. Let it rip. So we told him, like, these are the rowdy bunch. These the are crazy the, the been to church twice bunch. Yep, y'all are just nuts, and you just can't wait to party this late. You're gonna just go late tonight. We also want to welcome all of our live streamers from Texas, New Jersey, California, New York, Michigan, uh, Indiana, Indiana, Georgia, Washington, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. Why are y'all looking at me like that? Because I'm squinting? Yeah, I mean, I do have, I wear, well, a, I wear one contact in this eye and no contact in I this eye. I think it's so because when kinda... it got to IN, I think you were thinking which state I is was. that. Yes. I.N. is Indiana, right, Charlie? Yes. Thank you, man. Charlie's with yeah. me. Hey, um, you know, a year ago, uh, I got to meet Charlie in Arizona. We got to have dinner together, and I really feel like I found a friend that's way smarter than me, um, but also somebody who is, I believe, prophetic in the time that we're living in. You know, people have asked us over and over again, like, why are you why are you so adamant about what you're saying you know with politics or even talking about these issues and what I've told everybody is we we did not choose that politics worked its way into the church by hijacking issues that are biblical issues like abortion and marriage and family and things that we as the church are to stand for and that is called the truth and this church is founded on John chapter 8. The truth shall make you free. The truth that you know shall make you free. And, uh, and that's, that's who we are. And so I, when, when, when we met, when Charlie and I met, I said, hey, how about July 3rd and 4th? And he said, yes. I wrote it down. And I said, you will not get out of this. And not, not that he would ever do that, but I'm just saying, that's a big weekend for us and a big weekend for America. So I am truly honored that he and his beautiful bride would come and bring his team and, and so glad to meet them and get to meet her and just hang out and, and just develop our friendship and relationship. We're, we're breaking him into Southern food. That's right, that's right, that's right. You know? So hey, can you put, it, put your hands together for Charlie Kirk? Come on, give him a big Freedom House Church welcome. You will not embrace the ideas that have destroyed countries, destroyed lives. We are going to fight for freedom on campuses across the country. That's why we are here. Hello. Hey, everybody. Great to be here. Thank you for those of you that have been to more than one church service this weekend coming to this one. And, you know, I, I joke around whenever I speak at uh, Steve Smotherman's church in uh, Albuquerque, he always does the four services. And I think Troy wanted to outdo him. So we did four year and honored to be here. So we're going to have a lot of fun in this service. This one will be a little bit more, um, a little bit more freewheeling. And, um, but we'll also go through some of the same things we've been talking about um, in the last uh, couple services. I just want to say, first of all, you have some wonderful leaders here at Freedom House. The Maxwells do such an amazing job. 
and it's an honor to be able to speak at uh, this church. I, get a, I, I do about 330 speeches a year, uh, do two podcasts a day, three hours of radio a day, and we also have a great team that helps us run Turning Point USA. But I just thought it was perfect to celebrate Independence Day with you all at Freedom House Church. Of all the churches, had to be at Freedom House Church. So when we celebrate Independence Day, we say that it's our nation's founding, which is an interesting thing to say because we didn't really form a government that day. We didn't form a constitution that day. Instead, we decided to no longer be part of somebody else's government. And so this was a very interesting moment where you had 56 men that signed a document that we call our birth certificate, the Declaration of Independence, which very well could have been a death certificate for every single person that signed this. It was a document that recognized eternal truth. It was a moment in time where the, the founding of America was leading up to what we call, it was the first great awakening of pastors in the Black Robe Regiment that stood for truth in the 1740s, 50s, and 60s that spoke clearly about moral issues, as Pastor Troy was saying. And what was, so, what was so incredible about the year of 1776 was that it wasn't the only notable thing that happened. Thomas Paine wrote Common Sense in the first part of 1776. Um, in Common Sense, he basically says to the fellow countrymen that you have a moral right to revolution against tyrants and despots. In 1776, it was also the year that Adam Smith wrote Wealth of Nations, which is a book that we uh, you know, quote a lot about kind of the inquiry into markets and capitalism. George Mason also passed the Virginia Declaration of Rights in June of 1776. And then in July of 1776, leading up after this long kind of boiling point of abuses, Lexington Concord was the year before, you have 56 people that associate. And by the way, some people left, just so you know. There were some people that were like, oh, this is not for me. So it was like 70 and then 60 and then 56. Kind of sounds like some meetings that we're at sometimes where we try to do meaningful things. They're like, yeah, this is too much of a price to pay for me. Ended with 56. And they decided to sign themselves publicly to a document and submit it to King George and say, we're not going to go hide in fear. We're going to tell you what we believe and why we believe it. And... If you have a problem with it, then you're going to have to arrest us, but we're going to contest for these truths. And we've been through the declaration in the last couple services, but I want to just focus on a couple parts that I think are extraordinarily important. And then I'm going to tell you this, what will make this service different. This will be the most timely in the sense of what's happening in our news cycle right now and how the truths in the Declaration of Independence are currently not just under assault, but they're suffocating at great peril right now in our nation. And so let's read it for, as Thomas Jefferson wrote it. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which has connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth, capital P, that the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature is God. Now in the previous service we said that the founding fathers pre, they, they intentionally mentioned that these were laws that have a creator. This was not an act of randomness. So, for example, if current college professors were writing this, they'd say the laws of nature and of science, or laws of nature and of something we can't explain. Instead, no, they said nature's God. That's a big deal. They were appealing to a supreme authority. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. We hold these truths, things that are true. It says in the scriptures, you have to understand, these were Bible-believing 
signers. All but one were regular church-attending Christians. All but one. We don't know about that guy. All but, so 55 out of 56. So where would they get this idea of things that are true? Well, the Bible's all about things that are true. Uncompromising. Total truth. Including, in one of my favorite scriptures, where it's right before one of the most famous verses where we always say, you know, Philippians 4.13, I could do everything through in the Lord or Christ who strengthens me. We rarely ever talk about Philippians 4.8, which says, whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is noble, ponder and love these things. Thomas Jefferson says this in a different way. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that things that are true are important. In fact, they are every single type of person can realize them, that all men are created equal. That's a big statement. You see, up until that time, we were just having this conversation backstage, and honestly, um, I, I wish I would have mentioned this in the previous services, but you guys get to hear this now, which is that the Bible frees you from who your father was, who your grandfather was, or who, who, who came before you. You are your own individual person made in the image of God. Now, the significance of this is that almost every other civilization that existed outside of Thomas Jefferson's most beautiful words here, they had a very high preference on who is your father, what, what area are you from? See, the Bible liberates you from that. The Bible says neither slave nor Greek nor Jew. We are all one in Jesus Christ. And I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it to you in the individual maxim of salvation. Your father cannot save you to go to heaven. And you cannot save your father. Every person must individually atone for your own sins and accept Jesus Christ for your life. For example, you can't accept Jesus for your family. If you're the father of that family, you can't accept them for your grandkids. You have to lead them to the Lord, hopefully, but they have to accept Jesus themselves. You see, when that idea is reinforced all throughout society, then you start to find out that all men are created equal with an equal right under the Lord. That was not reflected in any sort of government up until Thomas Jefferson writing this on July 4th, 1776. Instead, it was not that all men are created equal. The current was that it depends on where you're from, who your father is, and whether or not you are friends with the king. So he just kind of just said, no, no, we don't like that anymore. We do not want to reinforce this kind of medieval dynasty. Instead, we believe in people's ability to have liberty. We're going to get into this, by the way, because liberty is really hard and it's really fragile. And the founding fathers knew this. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I'm going to say something controversial. But it's true that you cannot have a secular society and also have liberty. You can't. And now it, 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 it will eventually fold amongst itself. And go look at these European nations right now that have become highly secularized, right? The church is not a predominant role in France or in Spain or in the United Kingdom. Many of them are still locked down. They are still locked down right now in many parts of Europe. And so if you become highly secular and the people become secular and they become their own God or their own most important moral order, it can work for a short period of time. But eventually there's going to come to this question that John Adams famously wrote where he said the Constitution was written wholly for a morally and religious people. It might have been James Madison, but the point is the quote that it's wholly inadequate for the people of any other. The point is that what Thomas Jefferson is saying here to the king it's like, we want liberty and we think we can handle it. You see, not everyone can. In fact, in America today, I don't know if we can handle liberty right now. In fact, the last year, it's an open-ended question. 
Because liberty requires you to take responsibility for your actions. It requires you to be informed. It also requires something that we don't like, which is disparate outcomes. Liberty requires this. For example, we had a service last night on July 3rd, um, the night, you know, the, the third heaviest drinking night in America. It's true. Thanksgiving is number one, New Year's, and then this is number three. I guarantee you last night, this is liberty in, in, in play. Some people decided to go to bed early last night and make good choices. Other people didn't. But what liberty allows you to do, or the ability to do something, is all of a sudden, you're going to have two totally different types of mornings depending on your decision. Right? So when you give people the ability to choose, all of a sudden, you're going to have results that people might not like. But then you can go back, well, well, that person was out drinking till 4.30 in the morning, and that person wasn't. The point is that you're going to have disparate outcomes. Liberty breeds a word that we don't like, which it does breed some form of inequality. Now, it's, we're tasked as Christians to try to mend that inequality through charity and love and compassion and all these different things. But at the moment of that, all of a sudden, for example, churches that preach the word of the Lord are going to have higher attendance and hopefully higher tithes and offerings. And churches that don't are going to, we'll see what happens, right? That when, when you allow that kind of liberty to exist, then all of a sudden you're, you're, you're going to break out of this, this obsession with egalitarianism. What Thomas Jefferson is saying to the king, though, is that, hey, I'm looking around the American people, and we are a very religious people, and they were. I mean, church attendance was the norm. They were praying and fasting before signing the Declaration. And he was saying, I think we're ready. I think we're ready for this liberty. Now, we go back to the scriptures. Not every type of people in the Bible are ready for liberty. I'll prove it to you. The most famous story of liberation in the entire Bible is of God's chosen people that went into slavery in Egypt. Right? And Moses comes and delivers them from this, challenges Pharaoh many times. Pharaoh doesn't like Moses, doubles the brick output, and they're like, who's this Moses guy? Get him out here. He delivers God's chosen people into the desert. And at first, they're really happy with this newfound liberty. They are slaves no longer. We have been set free. They're excited, right? They're, they're praising the Lord. But then after a couple chapters, their human nature starts to set in. After a couple chapters, and I kid you not, this, you could you go look at the exact verse. They start to all of a sudden conspire against Moses because they were only eating manna from heaven, right? Quail blown off course, whatever you name it, they had what they wanted. No one was going hungry. But God's chosen people said, who's this Moses guy? Why are we here in the desert? Like we have no direction. At least we had purpose when we were slaves. And in fact, we ate better because in Egypt, we had meat. The point is that liberty was so fragile at that moment, in that period of time, that they were ready to go back to be slaves because they ate better. Yeah. Kind of sounds like the last year, right? Lock me down as long as I have Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon delivering things to my home, right? Liberty is really fragile. It's hard. And I don't, maybe we're able to have a, a, a comeback and a turnaround to that. But it wasn't until Moses was able to bring a moral order to God's chosen people to hold everyone accountable, were they able to actually experience self-government? So here's a really interesting question. Thomas Jefferson here in the Declaration basically tells the king, we want to govern ourselves. Well, in the Bible, we have the first ever example of self-government, where God's chosen people for many decades were able to govern themselves with a police force or a standing army. Why? Because the law was the center of their town. The law was the center of their civilization. Everyone knew the law and they enforced it. In fact, let's look at the, what the founding fathers said about this. And it's very interesting. James Madison said, if all men were angels, government wouldn't be necessary. But unfortunately, it's the opposite, which means that we have to restrain government. And so, so John Adams wrote extensively about human nature. And these, 
These founding fathers, despite what your teachers might tell you, were so wise and they were so brilliant. He said this, suppose a nation, it is the second American president, in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged and conscious to be temperance, frugality and industry, to justice and to kindness and charity towards his fellow men, and to piety, love, and reverence towards Almighty God. What utopia, what a paradise this region would be. That's John Adams, our second president. Now, we know that's not the case now today. We're having questions even within the church whether or not the Bible is true, right? Let alone, should we live by the biblical precepts? But this idea of self-government started in Israel. But what what does our fallen nature eventually demand? So we had self-government, but God's chosen people said, yeah, yeah, that's right. Give us a king. Literally, they cry out to God and they say, give us a king. And God, and I'm paraphrasing, he was like, be careful what you wish for, basically, paraphrasing. But he's like, you sure you want a king? Like, yes, give us a king. Like, okay, then you're going to have to live under the tyranny of one instead of the ability to govern yourself. So one of the biggest lies that is told in the church is that the Bible never comments on politics. Now, it is true the Bible doesn't comment on those two political parties, but politics is mainly a form of community. How do we govern ourselves? How do we regulate our behavior? How do we choose who has power and who doesn't? That's what politics is. You see, politics, we always think of it as kind of like right versus left, and all that stuff is for a different speech at a different time. What I'm getting at is the Bible makes very clear of how we're supposed to govern and regulate our own behavior. What kind of civil framework do we deserve? What kind of a nation should we have? Should we even care about nations? Or should we have a one world? Well, it tells in the Bible that you should have separate nations. Nations with borders, and you should have nations with delineation. Just look at Nehemiah, who was very clear about trying to protect borders against foreign invaders and trying to protect the nation of Israel. The point is that in the Bible, it says very clearly that when you have the truth and you understand what that is, you should try to contend and contest for that, especially in a civil framework. The founding fathers understood this, and they made the argument that King George was currently violating that promise, was that King George was violating this idea that there should be a supreme ruler in charge. In fact, at the end of the Declaration of Independence, they say just that. Uh, Thomas Jefferson writes, and is signed by um, the, the 56 signers, that we appeal to the supreme judge of the world. For the rectitude of our intentions, do in name an authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are of right, ought to be free and independent states, and they are absolved from their allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain. And finally says, with a firm reliance of the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. As we remember July 4th, which we say is the founding of our country, it was them being obedient to what the scriptures told them on how they should govern themselves. In fact, this was faith plus action. That's what July 4th was all about. It was being filled with the Spirit, understanding who, in whose image we are made and where our rights come from. And so I ask students all the time, I travel the country a lot for Turning Point USA, where do rights come from? Who gave you these rights? What is a right? I have a right to health care. No, you don't. You have a right to life, to liberty, to consciousness, to your existence. What God made you with is what you have a right to, and you also have a right to pursue virtue. But who gives you those rights? Is it government? Is it the state? Is it your professors, your parents? No, it's the Lord. You see, what they're saying here is the first ever articulation of this idea of natural rights. That's a really big deal. Now, you see that contrasted right now in the news cycle where they say, well, we have a right to this 
piece of property. We have a right to this. No, you have the right to pursue it. You have the right to try to apply yourself. Now, what's the problem with this? That only works if you have a motivated and accountable citizenry. It's, it will fall apart eventually because most people are like, wait, hold on a second. I don't want to work. I want to take what he has and I want to work less. Right? Eventually, it's trying to implode. The only way it doesn't is if the church does its job. The only way it doesn't, if the church holds its people accountable and says, you know what? Stop trying to envy your neighbor's property. If a man does not work, he does not eat. Go apply yourself and multiply greatly. That's the only way that type of system works. So now I want to kind of take a, um, a tangent, which is a very important one, of how this all applies today. You've probably heard over the last couple of days, radio, podcast, TV, talking about the Declaration. Maybe you guys read it yourself. I encourage all of you just to take time to reread it tonight and see what speaks to you in it because it's such a beautiful document in more ways than one. And some of you have heard what we talked about here. But the ideas of the Declaration, and yes, the Constitution is directly formed with the Declaration. Some historians say America has two foundings, both the Declaration and the Constitution. I reject this. I think the founding was the Declaration, which was the preview of the Constitution. America doesn't have two foundings. It was the, the Constitution was the completion of the complaints of the Declaration. That right now here in America, there is an all-out assault on trying to say that we were not founded in 1776, instead that we were founded in 1619. You probably heard this before. It's a project called the 1619 Project being put forward by the New York Times. Uh, it's being pushed in, uh, specifically by one of North Carolina's own, uh, a woman by the name of Nicole Hannah-Jones. She is now a tenured professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Her whole belief is that, no, it wasn't 1776. It wasn't when those 56 men signed the Declaration. It was when the first slaves came to the British colonies. That was our founding. Now, at face value, not understanding the context or the history or the nuance, it kind of sounds somewhat appealing, like maybe that is who we are. Maybe that is in our spirit, in our soul. Maybe that was actually our founding. But let's take a consideration. What was it that the founding fathers were trying to do and what happened soon thereafter? So Nicole Hannah-Jones, her entire assertion is that 1619 was the beginning of the same racism that we experience today. And the founding fathers, they did nothing to try to get rid of that. They did nothing to try to get, to get rid of slavery. Instead, they tried to reinforce it and build a system that protected it. Well, if that was true, then why was it the first ever anti-slavery convention in the world was held in 1775 in Philadelphia, chaired by Benjamin Franklin? Then why would it be that Vermont independently abolished slavery in 1777 because, I quote, they were inspired by the teachings of the Declaration of Independence? Most school children do not know that 9 out of 13, that's right, more than a majority, a vast majority of the colonies by the time of the ratification of the Constitution had already independently abolished slavery on their own by 1787. That's right. So within 11 years of the Declaration of Independence... Nine out of 13 colonies had already independently abolished slavery in the territories that they oversaw and that they governed. Now, everyone enters into a world that they did not create. Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, every founding father entered into a world with slavery. But they were able to say something that almost no other generation was able to say. They died with slavery on the way out because of their actions, because of their writing, and because of the truths that they expressed. That's, an, that's a really big deal. You see, the people in the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s weren't able to say that, but they were able to change the trajectory, albeit not every state followed suit and there was a conflict that happened in the 1820s, but isn't it something that is heroic and admirable and beautiful and exceptional when all of a sudden you can start the process of changing something that is evil? 
instead of saying, well, they didn't get rid of all of it. Well, let's also talk about what they did get rid of. Thomas Jefferson, I love Thomas Jefferson, a very flawed and complicated individual. Of course, we are not sinners, so you know, we can look very down on Thomas Jefferson. I always laugh at this, right? Like, oh yeah, they're so bad people. There's actually a scripture to this, and then I'm going to get to that. In Genesis, this is a very important thing when you view history. It is anti-biblical to ever impart your values of today on the people yesterday, and I could prove it to you. So in the first part of Genesis, every word means so much. Every word of the Bible means a lot, but especially in the first couple of chapters, because there's so much that happens in such a short period of time, literal creation, right? And so I want you all to go back and look at how Moses, who likely wrote Genesis as we know it, transcribed it, I should say, from the Lord. How did he describe Noah? He described Noah not as a good person. He described Noah as a good person amongst his generation. Meaning, Noah might not have been that good of a person if you compare him to Abraham. Like, Noah was good in the time he was in. So maybe he was still having rave parties and, you know, going and doing like on total benders, but he was the best that we had at the time, right? Like Noah was the top of the hill, all right? The point is that we still look affectionately at Noah because God looked at the landscape. He's like, all right, that's all we got. Like ark, animals, flood, he's the man. The point is that don't, Thomas Jefferson was a good man amongst his generation, the same way Noah was a good man amongst his generation. And we can go through his flaws innumerably, but let me tell you about the good things Thomas Jefferson did. In the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, the first draft, in his own handwriting, in the biggest letters you'll ever see, I've seen this myself, Thomas Jefferson blamed King George for bringing the sin of slavery to America and said, you have plagued us with this, and now we have to figure out a way to get rid of it. He said, we're going to now have to get rid of... We're gonna have, he was in the original draft of the Declaration. He wrote that. Thomas Jefferson contended for the abolition of slavery in Virginia countlessly as governor and in the legislature. Thomas Jefferson also contested in the Constitutional Convention. You guys can read this in your, consti- in, in your own constitution. That after 20 years, America must have the right to be able to get rid of the slave trade. So in 1807, Thomas Jefferson became America's third president. And on the first day of pre- as his presidency, he signed an order that fulfilled his promise that ended the importation of new slaves into the United States of America. Now, Thomas Jefferson was a little naive. He thought that would end slavery altogether. He thought, okay, if we end the import, this thing will be sunsetted without having to actually go fight. This is before the cotton gin. This was before John C. Calhoun. But he thought he was actually putting a death nail in the sin of slavery. Now, what's so important about all of this is the process started to unfold. When did all of this start? Right near 1776. So we can go pick any sort of arbitrary date. You know, was America's founding in 1434 when all the Vikings, you know, found Canada? Was it when Christopher Columbus found it? No, no, our founding has always been and will always be the day when things started to change. Right? When truth was expressed, then all of a sudden, we started to see real movement for the betterment of humanity albeit flawed, that's in our nature, but when the laws started to calibrate our principles and our ideals, that's a very big deal. You see, if you overemphasize the 1619 idea, I think you lose the heroism of the people that actually contended for these truths. Now, I could go through many other pieces of examples of why I feel as if 
uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones' thesis is incorrect. She says the Founding Fathers wrote extensively about their motivations was to protect racism. There is not one original source document that writes this at all. There is, there is nothing of the sort. In fact, you'll see John Adams and John Quincy Adams, in particular America's sixth president, contend for the abolition of slavery at, at length. But the big, the big moment is this. The, the big question is this, though, is that do we want to instill into our children a nation that was founded on universal and principle, principles that are universal and still applicable today? Or do we want to instead indict this collection of founders as someone that is not worthy of understanding or appreciating? And that's really what it ends up doing. Because if you teach history in a certain way, where you say they were nothing but slave owners and they were terrible and they were awful and they had nothing valuable to say, you know what that does? That creates a very prideful generation. That creates a very arrogant generation. That creates a very self-righteous generation. Now, and you only imagine what people 100 years are going to say about us. About like, man, they had abortion? You're trying to tell me that they didn't do more about that? You're trying to tell me a million abortions a year and they were just kind of cool with it and it was considered controversial? You're All of a sudden, we do a little reality a check against ourselves of some of the immorality that we allow. You're trying to tell me that they had drag queens going on cable television on Nickelodeon going after six-year-olds. The point is this, is that are we making movements to actually try to get back to what is moral and what is good and what is true? In some ways, yes, we're trying. But the founders, they were change makers. And that's what made them so exceptional and so unique. But here today, outside of the 1619 Project, that's part of it, which is really, um, it's more than troubling. It really is complete and total garbage, but I'm happy to go into it at a later date. Is that there's this other thing, and many of you heard about it, which is that direct war with the truth of the founding, which is called critical race theory. And some of you have heard about this before. And this is an idea that we need to overemphasize skin color, that we need to care about skin color. So I was raised in an America that really told me that we shouldn't care about skin color that skin color is completely and totally irrelevant, that we should care about your soul and your spirit and your character. And that is a biblical view on how we should interact with each other. But the danger and the temptation of critical race theory is to say that awful things happened and therefore we must do things that are now awful today to right the wrongs of things that happened yesterday. This is a very dangerous way of thinking. It goes deeper than that. Instead, it's training a generation not to look at every single person as a human being made in God's image, but instead to organize them based on a tribal group. So as I mentioned in a previous, the previous one or two sermons ago, here's what makes a human being a human being. We're able to do something called the common noun miracle. No animal can do this except human beings. A three-year-old can do it and we take it for granted. For example, if I told someone to come up on stage and say, grab me the water bottle on stage, they would grab that water bottle right there. They might have never seen that water bottle before, but they instantly know that's the water bottle and those are the drums. The point is, whether you realize it or not, the way that the Lord made our mind is that we can organize things in their place. We know it before we see it and we see a form like, oh, that's a camera, that's a seat. Even if we haven't seen that specific seat before, we know the general form of it and our mind triggers, that's the common noun of which it is. Now, the way we've raised our children is to look at humans as a human, not as what tribe they're in. They are now trying to say, no, 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 we should have four-year-olds think of, oh, that person's part of the black tribe, and that person's the, in the white tribe, and that person's in that tribe. We are training young people and students 
to be hyper-racialized in how they organize human beings. Instead of getting to know somebody, hey, tell me about your views. Do you know the Lord? Can I tell you about the Lord? Instead, it's, oh, you know, you're oppressed because of your skin color. Or you're an oppressor because of your skin color. Or we need to completely retool all society because I've been told that everyone that looks like you is a bad person. Now, this is illogical, but it is everywhere. Just two days ago, the National Education Association, the largest teacher union in the country, they passed a resolution, you can look at it yourself, where they are now going to put forward, and they used the word, it's not equity, they said critical race theory in 14,000 school districts across the country in all 50 states. That is the largest teacher union in the country. They're playing offense with this. And so the founding fathers started this movement. I'm going to connect this all together. I only got five minutes, but I'm going to try my best, right? Which is... Um, the founding fathers started this movement to abolish slavery and get people to think terribly about slavery. In 1820, a man by the name of John C. Calhoun came onto the stage. Now, John C. Calhoun wrote robustly about certain things and was really right about some things, and he was evil and wrong about other things. John C. Calhoun was the vice president to Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams. John, Quincy, John C. Calhoun thought Thomas Jefferson was wrong. So John C. Calhoun said, you know what? All men are not created equal. He said that liberty must be earned and certain human beings have a higher right to liberty than others, specifically based on skin color. So John C. Calhoun himself was poking Thomas Jefferson and said, you're wrong. Now what ended up happening is that a lot of deceitful and misleading literature sprung out making a defense, even at times, biblical defense of slavery. This was in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s because of the economic motive behind it. Now, that was really the tension that led to the American Civil War where a certain political party was founded under the one principle of abolition, ab abolishing slavery called the Republican Party in Ripon, Wisconsin. One, one point, one issue. The point is that this idea started by John C. Calhoun was trying to say that everyone's skin color is actually really important. This idea was continued by a guy by the name of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Nathan Bedford Forrest started the KKK. Uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest said that skin color matters all the time. We need to teach children to think about it. And now it's being completed by the current people of Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi and Taha Nisi Coates. So this is the tension point right now, is that in our schools and in our culture, do we still believe what the Declaration says, that all men are created equal in God's image? Or do we say that, some skin colors are better than others. Do we think that maybe some skin colors need to atone for things that they individually never did for themselves? The point is what's really happening is that the truths and the promise and the goal of the declaration is currently put on referendum all across the country right now. So what we are celebrating right now, which is human equality made in the image of God, is now a, for, is a, is a forefront issue right now happening in our country. And guess what? We as the church need to be louder than ever about this because this is from, and I'm, I'm going to say something that is very controversial, but again, I, that's kind of my thing, right? Is this, anyone who overemphasizes skin color at all is doing the work of Satan. Yes. If all of a sudden you are going around and you are saying that I want to teach people to care about how you look, not about who you are, then you're, you are doing the handiwork of the enemy. So that's the spiritual war, isn't it? And that's where the church needs to rise up. 
A church needs to rise up and say, we care about the soul of all people, that you're made in the image of God. And sometimes you're gonna be called bad names and all these, all these things, but that's really the kind of courage that we need. So I'm gonna end with a couple pieces of scripture here. And um, I wanna thank you guys for coming to this uh, third, fourth service, it's great. In Galatians 5, it says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery. Paul was not talking about the type of slavery that the founding fathers started to unwind, the, the paradigm they started to shift. He's talking about the slavery that we all experience, which is the slavery to sin. It's natural. It's in, it's in who we are. Um, if you got a problem with that, go blame Eve, okay? The, the point is that, well, again, there's this debate. Was it really Adam or was it really Eve? Like, both of them, all right? They were a cooperative partnership in the rebellion of God, all right? Is that good? It, everyone, there's a debate about who actually to blame. The point is that it's in our nature. We, have, we are naturally rebellious against the Lord. And so we need Jesus to be born again. And then we also not just need to know the truth, but express the truth. And man, what a great opportunity to express the truth when all of a sudden you have this insidious movement that's going around and telling people, don't worry about their soul. Don't worry about their spirit. Just focus on how they look. You see the melanin? That's what matters. What a great opportunity for those of us that are filled with the spirit to say that that is an evil way to view the world. But I want to just give this opportunity, and we'll close with this, that as we just have gratitude and we're thankful to live in the greatest nation ever to exist in the history of the world, that we take this amazing opportunity to just say that if you have not given your life to Christ, that this is a chance to do so that you make Jesus Christ the chairman of your board and the most important thing. And, and, G, and, and Christ cares for the church uh, like it's his bride. And we just got married May 8th, my wife and I, on May 8th. And so I wanna just give this opportunity for people to be able to do that. And I wanna just thank you guys for so generously hosting us over the last couple days. And um, we've been given this great gift and we are supposed to contend for freedom. One of the many themes of the Bible is trying to always set the captives free, free from sin, free from bondage, and that's what Jesus Christ did. So please pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you for this wonderful nation. We pray for our leaders. It says in 1 Timothy to pray for them by name so that we might live quiet and peaceful lives. And we pray for the well-being of everyone here, that they might accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and that he will set you free, that we might have life eternal. Thank you for all the freedoms that we enjoy. Thank you for the opportunities in front of us. And we pray that we'll be able to spread truth against the darkness at this moment in our history. We love you, Lord. Thank you. Amen. Hey, stay right here. Stay right here. Now, Erica, can you come up here real quick? I want to pray. Can we just pray for Erica and, and Charlie? We didn't do this in the other service. Honey, why don't you come up here real quick? And um, just want to, is it okay if we pray for you? Is that okay? <laughs> I know you probably get a lot of people to pray for you, but I, I just feel like that we as a church just want you to know that we're behind you. That you, um, here, here's the picture that I got, because uh, I was talking to somebody about um, just an army and just, connecting with people and friends like people that love you and care about you and that's the the peace in knowing you never have to look behind and wondering about whether they support you you know and in ministry one of the tough things is uh some people can whisper and talk and you wonder what's going on in in the back part of 
the army, the the warriors. And I want you guys to know that you have some friends in Charlotte, North Carolina that care about you. You have a church that supports you. And so would you guys just stretch your hands out to Charlie and Erica? And we're just going to lay hands on you. Father, thank you so much for the gift that you've given us, the church, Lord. Um, I thank you for the anointing that's on their life. Father, I just pray that their marriage is continually strengthened as they travel together. The love that you have sown in their hearts will grow and grow. Father, the words that Charlie speaks on every podcast and every church service, wherever he may be, God, that you'll use those words to change lives. You're already doing it, God. And we ask you to continue to do it. And Father, I just pray that whenever there's a time to sit and reflect and wonder, um, am I doing this for the right reason? Am I, am, I, uh, um, am I saying the right thing that God, he'll always remember that there's a church, there are people in Charlotte, North Carolina that love him, that care for him, that believe in him, and that are with him in faith and prayer and in the call of God for their life. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Give it up for Charlie and Erica. Appreciate you guys.